welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week I am joined by three very special guests to talk about the world after Trump. We're going to engage on a difficult thought experiment, if you can drag yourself away from your Twitter feed for a few minutes um, and look beyond the next election. We're going to imagine that a Democrat is in the White House. We don't know who because there's so many, over 20 of them vying for the chance to represent the Democrats. Um, the purpose of this podcast is to try and work out how much of the crisis in transatlantic relations is due to the perversions of uh, the current occupant of the White House and how much is about structure and also what sorts of things will Democrats bring to the White House? What is kind of emerging from the early uh, skirmishes between the different candidates and how much will foreign policy play a part in their platforms as they uh, both uh, move towards getting selected and then fight for the right to be the next president of the United States. I couldn't hope for three better people to make sense of this than the ones that I have in this room. Um, first up, we have uh, Ben Rhodes, who's a former advisor to President Obama, um, author of a best-selling new book. What's it called again? The World As It Is. The World yes. As It Is, which starts with this interesting thought of what if we were wrong? <laughs> yeah. um, second up is, is Jake Sullivan, who was... Uh, uh, both uh, national security advisor to, to president uh, to vice president biden uh, but also was the head of policy planning um, to uh, hillary clinton when she was at the state department and uh, amanda sloat um, is a senior fellow at brookings who also served in in the obama administration in various different roles uh, both on the national security council and in the state department so i don't know uh, if we maybe start with you ben i mean how how do you see this mix of structural change, the fact that the Cold War no longer exists, that China is rising and is, is taking up more American attention, that the forever war has yeah. ground down the patience yeah. of the American people, and how much of, it, of the problems are about, about Trump? Yeah. Well, it's a bit of a mix. I think, you know, to understand President Obama's foreign policy, you have to understand that he was reacting to both a belief that the post-Cold War moment was somewhat transitory, that, that the America having that degree of hege hegemony was not something that was going to be naturally sustained with a rising China, with a more revanchist Russia, with emerging powers in different parts of the world. And we had come into office with the body blows of the financial crisis in the Iraq War, which had really shaken global confidence in the United States. And what he was trying to do was manage a shift to a different type of international order that drew on all of the strengths of the post-World War II order and built on top of it. And it manifested in agreements like the Paris Climate Accord, uh, the Iran nuclear agreement, a, mu a much more multilateral U.S. approach aimed to promote burden sharing. And, and I think he saw himself as someone who's trying to transition from one period of American foreign policy that really reached its nadir around 9-11 and then collapsed in the calamity of the Iraq war to a more sustainable model of U.S. leadership. So that kind of reapportionment of global power and influence was taking place anyway. Trump, where he represents a you know, very strict deviation from Obama, his view is that old order doesn't work. 
we basically want to pull up stakes, leave the international order, and essentially have this policy that's a mix of isolationism and belligerence. We will be isolationist in systematically removing ourselves from what he sees as the constraints of the international order. And then where we have a problem, we will deal with it belligerently and largely bilaterally, whether that's with Iran or Venezuela or China or whomever. I think the stakes in this next election couldn't be more pronounced in terms of internationally, because if Trump is validated and reelected, the direction he's set in taking apart alliances and breaking apart this international order, I think will accelerate. You can make a lot more change in a second term than you can in a first. And we really will live in a world in which the international order that we've known no longer exists. Whereas if a Democrat comes in, I think they're more likely to, yes, try to end the forever war, try to reduce uh, certainly military uh, uh, resource uh, pressure on the United States, but to re-engage the multilateral system. And so we're we're really at a fork in the road here. But Jay, from a European perspective, you know, if you look at what Ben was saying, it looks like there is a consensus on the forever war, which means both pulling out the Middle East, but also... uh, when Europeans hear that, they also hear the danger of a sucking sound out of Europe as well as uh, as people pivot towards Asia. And secondly, the, the conflict with China is something which is uh, quite scary to a lot of European countries that have integrated China in their supply chains. So, A, do you think there is a, a sort of bipartisan consensus on those things? But secondly, what are the good things about a, a Democrat coming into the White House from a European perspective? <laughs> Well, just to pick up where Ben left off, I think on the kind of fundamental tenets of the multilateral order, and by that I mean reinvesting in the transatlantic alliance, NATO, uh, reinvesting in things like the the JCPOA with Iran, the Paris Climate Agreement, the Migration Accord, uh, the ways in which the United States worked with Europe uh, as a partner of first resort to solve big transnational issues. I think you'd see a Democrat... uh, going back to that with even greater vigor than past Democrats have because of the urgency of the moment and to compensate for the four years that we've had with Donald Trump. I do think that there is convergence between Trump and the Democrats on at least the theory of reducing our involvement in military conflicts in the Middle East. Uh, I would say that Trump in practice has not actually really done that. Uh, He has more troops in Afghanistan now than the day he took office more troops in Iraq now, uh, more troops spread across the Gulf as he prepares for the potential for a military conflict with Iran, which Democrats would be very much against as a war of choice rather than a war of necessity. Um, But broadly speaking, at least in rhetoric, there's convergence there. China represents a really interesting case of the difference between Trump and the Democrats because they broadly agree that, that there has to be a more competitive approach to China. But Trump believes you do that not just by going it alone, but also by simultaneously picking fights with your your European allies on trade and Mexico on trade and Canada on trade, whereas a Democrat would want very early on to sit down with the European leaders and say, how do we come up with a common approach on China, not just on trade issues, but on technology issues, on values issues, on issues related to these enormous questions around artificial intelligence and biotechnology and, and the future of our economies and societies. Um, so I think you would expect 
a, a Democrats put a huge amount of emphasis on Asia, but to do so in a way where their starting premise is we're only going to succeed in Asia if we have our European partners. You sound like Hillary Clinton. We're going to pivot to Asia together. It's not about pivoting away from Europe. It's about pivoting Well, uh, can I just say one thing on that? <laughs> At the time she said that, all the Europeans basically were like, yeah, yeah, whatever, right, sure. Now, I actually believe, having seen Trump deciding to do this a totally different way, when I talk to, to friends and colleagues in Europe, many of them say, oh, now I kind of get where you were going with that whole thing. And actually, it's true that um, the degree to which Europe is elevating China in conversations with Americans yeah. and saying this is much more on our agenda yeah. means that it's no longer, I think, kind of the perception is not these are hollow words. This could be an agenda we work out together. But I do worry. But I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. It'd be great to hear what you think, Amanda, because you talk to a lot of Europeans as well. I'm not sure that people are worried about them being hollow words. I think maybe even more worried about them not being hollow. Because I remember when uh, Kurt Campbell was in the State Department as well. He tried to, to encourage Europeans to be part of this pivot and to be sort of involved in it. And his ideal model for transatlantic relationship on Asia was to see Europe as some sort of Greek chorus that would pipe up on human rights issues, on um, international law in maritime conflicts and things like that, and to back up the American position. And I think, in fact, that's the, the fear in many European capitals now is that they'll be co-opted into that sort of Greek chorus role as as um, uh, the US and China vie for, for military primacy in Asia, um, which is something which is not necessarily seen as in the, the national interests of many European countries, even very close allies like the UK. Well, lots of questions packed in there. I'll, I'll say a, a couple of things. I, first, I think there there is increasing shifting opinion in Europe about the risk of China that we have not seen in the last number of years, which is why I think what, what Jake is saying would make sense about uh, Europeans moving closer to that and, and wanting to work more closely with the United States. Uh, I think we've seen a lot of Chinese investment in Europe, particularly in the literal states, particularly in critical infrastructure. And there is a growing recognition, I think, about some of the medium and longer term threats that that's tended to pose. Uh, you've had greater concern in Europe about Russia, which has posed a more immediate security threat on Europe's eastern flank. But I think there is greater awareness now about the, the potential risk of, of China. Second, on the idea of, of Europe being a, a, a chorus the, the EU it historically has tended to define its policy position either in agreement with the United States or in opposition to the United States. And part of why Trump, I think, is, is creating so much chaos and confusion here is Trump, by definition, wants to have a fairly unpredictable foreign policy. And that has made it very difficult for Europe to either try and align itself with or against him. And we're seeing uh, difficulty within the Europeans to identify and develop their own singular policy that they're able to produce separately from the United States. And so one of the risks, I think, of American withdrawal from Europe is that the U.S., even if it didn't do everything in Europe, was actually able to provide a, a bit of a, an intellectual leadership role. And I think with the, the, the pivot, I, you know, Kirk Campbell actually reached out a lot to European ambassadors Absolutely. in Washington to try and bring people on board. Hillary Clinton 
was was the first to work with Kathy Ashton in the the role of EU high rep, and I think really tried to legitimize that role as an effective interlocutor for the United States in Europe. Answer this Kissinger your question of of who you call in Europe. Uh, they of course had had made a trip to Asia together, and I think there really was a desire to bring. Europe on board with the the United States in addressing a lot of these things. The last thing I'll say, I going back to, to your question, is I think there also needs to be a recognition in Europe that there is a decent chance that Trump gets reelected. And one of the things that concerns me about where Europe is, is there does not seem to be a lot of critical thinking about what that is going to mean for Europe. And there doesn't seem to be a plan B beyond sitting tight for the next 18 months, hoping nothing bad happens during that period. And then this, this aberration and, and American president is is gone. Uh, and I think Europe needs to be thinking over the next year how they are going to respond if that's not the case. Yeah. I, one of the really interesting things about this relationship is it's so freighted with history and with different expectations and every generation has got its own transatlantic relationship. I think what's interesting about the three of you is that you're all, you know, mo- all of your professional life has been post-Cold War. A lot of it's been post 2008 and the sort of financial crisis about all of your government experience has been in this completely different world which is more multipolar where China is a big role I mean I, I um, my first uh, years working were during the Bosnia war which yeah. is a completely different kind of set of problems in a transatlantic relationship so it'd be very interesting to hear you know looking forward to what sort of relationship you think we can hope to to be building if if you get rid of the the both the, the sort of hopes, but also maybe a lot of the illusions yeah. of earlier generations who were socialized during the Cold War or the immediate post Cold War issues where we were trying to solve European problems like that. Well, that's that's the main thing. I mean, I I, I honestly think there's there's a bit of a failure to communicate here because. Um, the, the the idea of America taking this global approach, focusing on Asia, really, I, as someone who's there throughout that, never thought that was at the expense of Europe. Uh, we frankly thought Europe was our central partner in it. And, and there, there are two ways in which I think I look at this transatlantic relationship. One is it's actually rooted in common values. And as someone who's been in the room with leaders from all over the world, there is something very rewarding, refreshing, and, and revitalizing about sitting down with people who you fundamentally share values with as against what it's like to sit down with like a Xi Jinping. And in a, in a world in which I think the main contest is between authoritarian systems of governance and democratic systems of governance, it is actually more important than ever that we as democracies come together around our common set of values. And do you all free agree that that's the big schism in the 21st century between authoritarian and democratic governments? I mean, I think the, the, the values piece is huge. I think that's why there is some American concern about what we see happening in Europe and Central and Eastern uh, Europe in particular, Hungary, Poland, some some backsliding on these real and questions Washington. within NATO, and Washington, what yeah, yeah. With, with Turkey, and, and, and the U.S. Is, is losing a lot of its moral leadership. I mean, I was at the Munich Security Conference earlier this year and had a taxi driver say to yeah. me, we used to look to America. You used to be the model yeah. that we aspire to, and, and we don't anymore. Uh, the, the generational issue, I think, is, is an interesting one. I I think certainly for us, our grandparents were were veterans of, of World War II. You had a generation that understood the history of Europe, what the United States had done in Europe. For all of us, I think probably we're in middle school uh, when the, the Berlin Wall fell. 
Uh, we had a lot of people studying Russia as a means of engaging with, or studying Russian as a means of engaging with, with Russia during the Cold War. The generation right after us came of age following 9-11. There was a shift of people studying Arabic and, and going into to jobs in the Middle East. And I worry about this next generation, both in the United States and in Europe, because there is not the same... Chinese. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. But there is also not the same understanding for, affection for, recognition of how historically involved the United yeah. States has been in Europe and why that's important. And I think there is a danger in the U.S. to feel like Europe is is done. We don't need to do public diplomacy there. We don't need to invest as much. Uh, and I think that's that's wrong. There is the, the gardening of diplomacy. There is the public diplomacy effort to remind Europeans, both in the general public and in leaders of this history. And I think Ben is, is absolutely right. And I think this is one of Obama's fundamental messages that wasn't always heard is that Europe really is the cornerstone of our engagement yeah. with the world, our partner of first resort. And the problems we're facing now from China to Iran to climate change are simply too big for the United States to solve alone. Yeah. We need Europe yeah. partnering with us on these things. Jay, you want to yeah, yeah, I mean, just listening to this, I'm reminded of how frequently, um, to paraphrase Yates, Europeans and Americans have an abiding sense of tragedy about this relationship that sustains us through temporary periods of joy. <laughs> I mean, but we are we have no confidence. We, we are constantly down talking, not just how we deal with one another, but our own capacities. And and I actually think one of the things that has given China an enormous advantage in pitching its model. And I agree with Ben that that this contest of models is going to be a central feature of the landscape. For so you think we're in kind of 1947? Well, no, I, I think it's a contest of models in a totally different way. I don't think this is evangelical in the way that the Soviet Union yeah. was. I think it's more, it, it has almost more of a, just um, a, a kind of inertial force. China is basically out there saying, we're doing really well. You know, you can now look to us, as Xi Jinping has put us, as an alternative way to do things. Choose to do it or not, that's up to you. But fundamentally, the West is in a moment where we're all looking at each other and saying, why are we so terrible? Why do we screw everything up so no. much? Why are we so weak? Why? And I actually think if the U.S. and Europe actually yeah. injected a bit more confidence and buoyancy and belief, the, the fact is, you speak of hopes and illusions. It's not illusions. Even just taking the record of the Obama years between the United States and Europe, what our uh, societies accomplished together on some really significant issues is pretty freaking impressive. And we should take a little bit more credit for that. Um, uh, I'm not saying everything's illusion. There, I, there's a lot of delusion. In, we did some work in different European countries, and it was hilarious how many countries thought they had a special relationship uh, with the US, which obviously they do in one sense, and they're yeah. all members we do. of. We have special yeah, relationships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do. We do. Yeah, Jake's makes an important point here, which is it, it, the values is one piece, the collective action is the other, yeah. right? And, and, and you don't do collective action in the world unless the US and Europe are aligned on it. And just to take the Obama, all of our major accomplishments, or most of them, getting out of the global financial crisis, the Paris Climate Accord, the Iran nuclear agreement. These are all things that, yeah. that we can't do without Europe. And, and similarly now, all the things that we care about going forward, how do we deal with the regulation of social media? How do we deal with the emergence of AI? How do we deal with migration? How do we deal with climate change? You cannot do these things unless the U.S. and Europe are, are, are creating the foundation together and then going to China and then going to India and other places to, 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 to galvanize collective action. So it's a necessity. And one, just, just to pile on that, I think the Greek chorus, the concept, which I hadn't heard before, is really interesting. Yeah. But 
What makes this moment so different is not just changes in the global distribution of power. It's that actually the United States comes to the table on some of these fundamental issues without answers, without clear answers on on the impact of the fourth industrial revolution on security, economy and society. And so there isn't like a script the U.S. is reading and asking the Europeans to amen to. It's something we are going to have to work out together and that we do share a common basic sense of norms and objectives that are not shared by other actors in the world. And so I think the biggest problem we could have is to have suspicion start to get built in that the U.S. is trying to use Europe as a tool of some kind in some larger geopolitical struggle. I yeah. don't think that's what's happening at all. No, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 on one side, German Jews, on the other side, British. So this kind of idea of the Atlantic relationship is very firmly embedded. And in you and I have the exact same background. Except, we, except yeah, yeah. some sort of historical flute, we yeah, ended up yeah. on different yeah, sides yeah, of the Atlantic. Yeah, literally the same. But um, so I, I completely believe in that, in everything that you just said, Jake. But it's interesting, if you take some of these big issues of the future, we are starting from quite different places as well. So if you take AI, for example, the big fear in Europe is that there is going to be this bipolar world with China on the one hand, yeah, US yeah, on the yeah. other hand, and we're basically going to be on the menu. There could be sort of $14 trillion yeah. economy that gets formed where we're not really capturing any of the added value. Yeah. And then people you know, talk about common values, but they also talk about these kind of massive differences on privacy, on other kinds of issues. And uh, obviously the differences is pale into insignificance compared with the difference between the Beijing model yeah. and... It's like the Democratic are. primary versus Trump. Right? <laughs> yeah. A bit like that, yeah. But that's not the question of I, whether, whether Europe can use this moment of international uncertainty created by Trump to try and create a more unified position. And this has always been yeah. the, the struggle in Europe. And I'm certainly sympathetic to the idea of 28 very different countries forging common positions on, on anything. But, but that's the challenge. And when you have... Uh, some of the fundamental tenets of the European Union challenged in the last couple of years. You know, I mean, Ben was talking about the United States being rocked by things. I mean, Europe has been rocked by financial crisis in Southern Europe that called into question this, this flagship idea of a single currency. You had a migration crisis, which called into question another flagship idea of, of free movement. And the problem is when the U.S. is not there and when Europe is not there, it creates a vacuum and somebody else is, is going to create this. And so part of the question for Europe even leaving aside Trump in the United States, is whether it has greater capacity to be able to operate in its own area. And just to take a very recent example, I think it was a mistake by the European Council not to decide to go forward with starting accession talks with North Macedonia and Albania, especially when you're seeing China being able to move in, trying to connect some of these countries to the Belt and Road Initiative. And so if the U.S. isn't there and Europe isn't there, it really does create space for some of these other actors to move in. So should we maybe, we've got about 10 minutes left, I think. So maybe we could take a couple of these issues and get quite concrete about what a modern relationship looks like. We've been sort of, I think we all agree China is going to be a huge um, yeah. part of it. So maybe we should sort of try and uh, think a bit more detail about what does an optimal transatlantic relationship look like on China and the different pieces of it. We talked about, you know, there's obviously an economic piece and it's obviously not just about China. And as you were saying, Jay, uh, when the Democrats were last in power, the way you dealt with China was to have an Asia strategy right. with TPP and yeah. all sorts of other elements to it. But there, but yeah, but maybe we start with China. What does the economic piece of it look like? 
where can we work together? Where could the tensions be, which are going to need to be worked through if we are going to have a common approach? And then on the security thing, obviously Europeans aren't massive players, uh, uh, even though there might be a couple of uh, uh, speeches made by European yeah. leaders about the French warship. But I don't know who wants to go first on the China thing. I would just say one thing on on the security side, and I think this is part of what Obama's Asia pivot was getting at, is if Europe is able to play a greater role in providing for its own security and protecting its own neighborhood, it frees up American resources to be able to deal with some of the security threats in Asia where Europe is not as big of a player. And I think we've gotten really wrapped around the the 2% debate, which, which Trump has certainly made one of his signature policies. And the idea has to be much more focused on capabilities rather than purely on numbers. And so on the security side, yes, Europe is not necessarily going to play there. But to the extent that Europe is able to do more in its own neighborhood, it does free up the U.S. to be able to to do more elsewhere. And then on the economic piece, I think the most tangible approach would be to look back to the experience of the GATT and basically start from the premise that the WTO does what it does, but does not address many of the modern challenges to our economy, whether you're talking about intellectual property, state-owned enterprises, digital trade, artificial intelligence, norms around biotechnology, and that just like in the, in the circumstance of the GATT, we, the like-minded market economies of the world pull together and set a set of rules on top of the WTO. And Sounds then, a bit like TTIP. Yeah, well, that, and that's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing: yeah. when you see, when you hear yeah. Democrats, even yeah. Democrats who oppose TPP, yeah, yeah, talk about how they would do it differently than, than Trump does on China. They say, "Well, we get a bunch of our friends together." And now, what makes it different from TTIP is I think TTIP still had too much in the realm of market access, yeah. probably, yeah. which creates challenges. Right. I think we yeah. should. We should come down to a set of things that are a little easier for us to all collectively agree upon. And then basically, and, and by the way, I would Leave link... chlorinated chickens off the table. Exactly. Yeah. I'd, I'd link the Asia effort and the Europe effort together into one and then basically say to the Chinese, you can either level up to this or the world's going to yeah. end up at least vis-a-vis trade with China leveling down to you. That, that I think, is the recipe. Whether we can execute on that is another question. I, I think that's exactly right. Um, and, and what I'd build on what Jake said, which is you know, setting standards uh, multilaterally that you then are using uh, to, to deal with China, it also has to do with how are we dealing with these other countries, right? You know, what we found is that you know, countries in Southeast Asia and Africa and Latin America, it's not like they are happy to be de facto colonized by the Chinese, right, uh, in their economic and commercial relationships. I think we can be more aggressive in appealing to those countries who are beginning to chafe a little bit under um, the way in which China approaches Belt Road, the way in which China approaches infrastructure development with their own labor, the way in which China basically ignores the cultural context of the places where they're dealing with and just engages in a very transactional and heavy-handed approach. So it's both the standards that we set and also how are we building greater connectivity. Europe can be very important in working in Africa with us to try to plug Africa more into the grid of the type of standards-based economy that that Jake spoke about. Um, And and again, to, to, to something Jake said earlier, having some confidence here. We have a lot of cards 
We, we're the United States and Europe. Look at our market share. Look at the things that we stand for that, that are, frankly, more attractive to people around the world. And that leads to the last place, which is values. I, I think we've gotten so beaten down and, and shy about advocating for the promotion of the things we care about. Maybe it was an Iraq war hangover. But I think we had to be more forceful in calling out things like what the Chinese are doing with the Uyghurs, the way in which Chinese state surveillance is being exported, and, and, and offering an alternative model. And what's going to happen? I mean, if you the thing which people are most terrified at the moment is, is decoupling, and we're seeing the Trump administration do things which lots of people just thought were impossible a few months ago. Um, the speed with which the technological base at universities are kind of... Uh, I mean, how does that move forward? Because that's being cheered on by quite a lot of Democrats as well. It's not simply something which... I mean, Trump is, is doing something which Democrats didn't <laughs> do when they, were, when they were in office. But is that something which you weigh back from? Or is that going to be something which Europeans and, and Americans are just going to have to, to work, find a way of working through? Because that's quite terrifying to Germany with, with its complicated supply chains. Well, the pendulum has swung really far, really fast. And I think it will have to come back a bit. It's yeah. not going to go back to yeah. where it was before, yeah. but it's going to have to come back a bit. And I'll just give you one example. The Trump administration, through the Department of Justice, is cracking down on Chinese students and researchers in the United States to a really significant degree. If that continues or increases, one of America's greatest assets, which is our ability to attract the best talent from around the world to our technology ecosystem, is going to be harmed. And not just because Chinese students stop coming, but because we start seeing the fleeing of talent from other places as well. So I think there will be corrections, including in the in the supply chain space where a kind of Iron Curtain or Berlin Wall analogy of just a yeah. total division of the world and totally impractical camps is yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. But there's going to be a lot of sorting and a lot of, of hard choices on individual issues like the Huawei 5G infrastructure issue. And we are going to have to manage those. I think we have to do so, though, with a, a more sensible framework than the one that's currently being applied with this with all of this language around the Iron Curtain and decoupling and all that. And I think you can overstate how much Democrats support this. Um, Democrats have been much more vocal in criticizing the trade war in recent months. The, when we see the impacts of higher prices and we see the impacts on, on, on U.S. agriculture, you know, Democrats have, have been oriented towards being, you know, quote unquote, tougher on China for a while, a bit more protectionist. But I think in practice, their solutions to those problems are still involve investing in our own research and innovation, working multilaterally, using international enforcement mechanisms. I don't think there's a lot of comfort, broadly speaking, the Democratic Party for this kind of bilateral escalation that Trump has been engaged in. And this goes back to my earlier point on public diplomacy. I mean, Jake is right about the attitude that the Trump administration has taken toward Chinese students, but we're also seeing a drop in even European students coming to study in the United States. People are watching the news and they're seeing school shootings. They're seeing heavy-handed polices. They're seeing family separation and they're thinking, that's not a country that reflects my values and I don't want to be there and and be a part of it. And the overarching thing on all of this is, is needing to remember that our relationships are ultimately between countries and not between leaders. And so I think if students do come to the U.S., you would also see that there is a very vigorous debate and there are people that are not happy about this. But I think to the extent that the U.S. is not welcoming these students coming in who are not getting firsthand experiences is going to be detrimental to these relationships in the long term. So the other area which may be worth looking at, the other geography uh, briefly, but you you spent most of your time uh, when you were all in office dealing with various crises in the Middle East. 
and Obama, in fact, came in pledging to end the forever war. That was yeah. that, that is an element of continuity. Um, what does the sort of long term uh, division of labor when it comes to the Middle East look like? What kind of uh, expectations should Europeans have about? America's level of commitment, but not also not just the level, the modalities of that commitment. Because drones was the big uh, innovation of the Obama administration, which was showed a different way of being engaged. But we're now seeing a, a kind of completely different approach, which I suspect elements of it uh, will this will will at least be recalibrated. The relationship with Saudi Arabia and, yeah. and Israel might change a little bit, but. Was a lot. I, I, what I'd say is, that, you know, we were trying to get to a place where we, we right-sized the resource allocations based on the threat of terrorism, and so we did go from having about 180,000 troops in Iraq and Afghanistan at the beginning of the administration to about 15,000 at the end. Um, I think now you see Democrats more aggressively talking about, you know, ending the legal basis for the forever war and kind of recreating the architecture behind this. In terms of what it means, though, if you look at the end of the Obama administration, I think we had begun to arrive at trying to define this, when you look at the counter-ISIS operation, there was a division of labor. The U.S. could provide a certain amount of that air power, then different European countries could plug in in different ways. The French could plug in with special forces and air power. The Germans were providing a lot of assistance to the Kurds who were fighting on the ground. And the division of labor was kind of designed. Uh, similarly, on the management of migration flows, uh, the, 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 the initiatives developed in the Aegean and the Mediterranean you know, relied heavily on European capacity to deal with their neighborhood, to deal with the flow of migrants and deal with the threat of terrorism in the Mediterranean around the Aegean. And I think that gets to what Amanda was talking about before, which is how can you design a security architecture where the Europeans are taking a, a bit more responsibility uh, for their immediate neighborhood and the management of migration flows and, and terrorist threats emanating from the Middle East. And the U.S. comes in when it has a unique capability, like when you need a, a significant air campaign against ISIS, um, but is leaving, again, uh, 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 through NATO or through European capabilities, much of this to Europe. And I think that the, the emergence of a European, a greater European defense capacity and potentially an expeditionary capacity you know, could be a part of this discussion, what takes place within NATO and then what takes place uh, within the auspices of either the EU or a, a like-minded series of states. But uh, I, The only thing that I would add to this is the, the single biggest challenge facing the U.S. and Europe in the Middle East is the collapse of state authority, which has left all these vacuums that outside actors can fill and terrorists can exploit. And I think we are going to have to have a serious conversation about what capacity we have collectively to do something about that. And it's not clear to me whether the answer yeah. is a lot or not. Yeah. But fundamentally, the U.S. and Europe having a hard-headed conversation about the long-term investments in reform, in strengthening institutions, in responsive governance, that's where the money lies. Now, the, you know, that, that's the money shot. But is it plausible? I think, I think that's a strategic conversation the two sides are going to have. Otherwise, we will largely just be nibbling around the edges with a kind of security approach along the lines Ben described or trying to manage the symptoms of this through de-escalating between Iran and Saudi. But the, the nub of the matter lies in something we ought to be able to do, but it's not clear whether we Okay, well, it's been a fascinating discussion. We're sort of running out of uh, time, but there's one last thing we have to do on this podcast, which is our, our bookshelf segment. Why don't we go the other way around? Amanda, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? 
Uh, I've been quite into the, the Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, uh, and I think the subtitle is Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics, and he comes at this from a very anthropological perspective and, and tends to look at a lot of the arguments that the left and the right put forward, and, and I find it, it quite resonant uh, on, on both sides of the Atlantic. What about you? I just finished a book called Billion Dollar Whale about the collapse of the 1MDB, the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, and yeah. it is an astonishing story of sort of corruption of financial networks globally, Goldman Sachs, the Emirati Sovereign Wealth Fund. I mean, it's it's both an interesting character study, but also it shows you uh, how the flow of money through the international financial system can literally bring down governments, um, but you know can be can be abused by corrupt actors in, in these just mind-blowing ways. What about you, Ben? Um, I may need Amanda to correct my butchering of a Turkish name, but I just read a, a great book called How to Lose a Country by a Turkish journalist named uh, Eche Temelkaran. Does that sound right, Amanda? Uh, and, and she's really extraordinary. And what she what's chilling about it is she's really talking about Turkey, but also more broadly, the authoritarian trend in the world. And she goes through kind of the seven steps of how authoritarians consolidate power and deliberately, you know, is using the example of Erdogan as a warning to the rest of us that, hey, look at what Trump's doing. This is the same playbook that we saw in Turkey, that we saw in Hungary. And as an American, I found it like a cold glass of water in the face. It was a wake up call because I am seeing, you know, a lot of similarities between how these different leaders are approaching politics. So uh, how to lose a country is something uh, I'd recommend. And I uh, I was in uh, the, the Villa Serbaloni, which is this villa which belongs to the Rockefeller Foundation in Bellagio in Lake Como. They have lots of fellows coming through and they have a library with all the books which the fellows wrote. And I found this dusty old volume called Political Power USA at USSR, um, written by Big Brzezinski and Sam Huntington, um, (laughs) about the kind of nature of the competition. I just started flicking through it, and there's so many fascinating parallels with the new US-China confrontation, big differences as well. Anyway, so I decided I'm going to to read that um, and see what lessons history can teach us about the, the next big geopolitical conflagration. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you have, please uh, let your friends and acquaintances know about it on social media. Um, we will put up links to all the publications we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from Ben Rhodes, Jake Sullivan, Amanda Sloat, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Yonatan Hakenpoch, and our editor is Vika 